to get through every single New Testament book. Uh, we started with the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then we uh, spent some time in the book of Acts. We lingered a little bit longer in the book of Romans. Then hit First and Second Corinthians, uh, stopped for a short time in Galatians, and today we're in Ephesians. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to that little book in the New Testament. It's closer with those other little books, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. I want to encourage you next week to read through the book of Colossians, as that's what we'll be studying next week, as uh, we have opportunity to look at that in a very powerful way. Grace Hill Church is all about honoring God by helping more people become fully devoted followers of Christ. And, and how we seek to make that happen is from an acronym, at least our process, uh, OWL, O-W-L, Oikos Worship and Life Groups. We reach out to those family and friends, people we do life together with, and just share our life, uh, share Christ's life with them, and try to bring them into a relationship with Him. Each of us have that privilege of reaching into those people within our sphere of relationship. Worship is all about coming to give praise and honor with God, and we express that in music and in prayer, and to learn more about God as we study His Word. And then life groups are those small groups we do together as we have opportunity to apply uh, the, tr- the scripture together uh, as one life and other lives, multiple lives, encounter uh, each other as we go through this journey uh, on this planet uh, that will be remade in the future by uh, the living Lord. But this morning I want to talk about how we're supposed to live. And I entitled the message, Walk Worthy. Often when people ask me, what's my favorite book uh, in the Bible? I often have to say it's the book I'm reading now. And in many, in many ways, Ephesians comes up to that level because Ephesians is such a powerful book that speaks how we're supposed to live. Some, so often we're told what to do, but not how to do it. Or other times, even we're told how to do it, we're not sure we can do it. Well, really, the book of Ephesians really answers all those questions, and it sets the bar high. In fact, in the middle of this book, it says that you should walk in a, in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And so the the standard is put up a little bit high. But how are we supposed to do that? Well, the Bible really operates on this principle is that what you don't know can hurt you. And that's particularly true in so many aspects of life. I was reading about this golfer, a young man, and he got off work a little bit early and was hoping he could get nine holes in before he had to go home. And so he got to the course, got on, there was nobody there. He said, I I know I'll be able to get through this quickly. And then right before he teed off, there was an older man that came up to him and said, well, can I I golf with you? I don't have anybody to golf with. Well, he didn't want to be rude, so he just memorized 1 Corinthians 13, says, love does not behave rudely. So he said, okay, you, you can golf with me. But he was a little fearful. They thought he might take a long time to finish each hole. We found out that he actually was a rather good golfer, didn't hit real long, but always right down the middle, and he always kept up to speed. Well, he finally got to the ninth hole, and the younger man hit, hit his drive, was a par four, and, and he hit it right in front of a tree that blocked his view of the green that he wanted to get on in the next shot. And so you could just see the wheels turning. He was kind of arguing himself, well, now, what should I do? Should I try to go over it? Should I go just hit it out and go around it? Or what should I do? And as he was going through this, internal debate that was showing on his face, the older man said, well, when I was your age, I, I, I'd hit the ball over that tree. Well, that kind of hit his pride, and so he addressed the ball and hit as high as he could, you know, try to give as much loft. It was really going up high, but it hit the top branch and landed right back where he had started. Well, the older man said, of course, when I was your age, that pine tree was only three feet high. <laughs> 
You know, what, what you don't know can hurt you. And that's true in the Christian life as well. The Bible says in the Old Testament that uh, for lack of knowledge, my people really are perished or destroyed. So, so this morning what we want to do is we want to find out what God wants us to know. In fact, sometimes uh, the Bible or Christianity is accused of, of being a book that's always just pointing its finger at us, telling us what we're supposed to do. But in reality, it really points more about what God has done. Now, the book of Ephesians, what I want to do this morning is I want to give you some context, a little content, kind of the clear challenge, and then, then I want to look at some specifics. Uh, it's, it's really kind of a, a simple, major thought through this book. And that thought is to walk worthy. And I hope at the end to kind of put that in a simple perspective. But he really begins um, this letter by, by speaking about what God has done. Now, if you look at the book of Ephesians, it has six chapters. Now, if you were to divide this book in half, the first half would be chapters one through... You're a very good class out there. And the second half would be chapters four through... Very good. You all got an A on that uh, first question. And, and so really, as you look at Paul, he really divides his, his message in that way, the first half and the second half, kind of dividing it almost totally evenly. And it's interesting, too, as you look at it, even the way he writes this letter. In the first half of the book, there are no, what linguists like to say, imperatives. There are no, there are no commands. There, there is nothing for us to do in the first three chapters. So you just want to read, you know, the good things God has done for you, just go chapters 1, 2, and 3, and then stop there. But if you continue on, then you'll see the second half, and now he goes from zero commands or zero imperatives to 35 commands and 35 imperatives, which I was tempted to give you all 35 this morning, but I didn't think you wanted to bear that. Uh, so we're going to look at those two type of things, the things God has done and the things God wants us to do. There are a lot of ways you can summarize this book. God wants us to learn it before we try to live it. He wants us to know before we do. He wants us to believe, and this is how we're going to be kind of looking at the message this morning, before we try to behave. He wants us to know our position in Christ before we try to practice it out in the world. He wants us to know our privileges before we try to fulfill our responsibilities. And so it's so crucial that we know what God has done before we try to figure out how we're supposed to do it. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. Another little bit of a context in this book is that Paul wrote this while he was in prison. These are called the prison epistles or the prison letters. Uh, probably written from Rome at the latter part of the 60s, I mean the earlier part of the 60s, around 61, 62. And it's about right before he you know, is released. And so as he writes this book about all the glories of what God has done for us and the great life we ought to live, he's written it from a perspective where his circumstances are what you would call not ideal. And so often our lives are lived based on, in terms of its, if its joy, joyfulness, based on just how joyful our circumstances are. Well, Paul did not have physical freedom this time, but he speaks about the freedom that we have in Christ. And so as we, as we look at this book, we, we see Paul writing passionately for his people. One other just kind of contextual note is that, interesting enough, in comparison to particularly 1 Corinthians, where that letter was written from a corrective perspective, this is written from a preventative perspective. Now, we, we are all, um, except for a couple of people who are in the front row here, um, you know, 
are all used to taking medicine. I mean, we're, we're taking medicine because something's going wrong, and so we want something fixed that's not feeling really good at the moment. And, and that's kind of like uh, corrective medicine. But there's a, another kind of medicine, which is preventative medicine, where you take it so you don't get what you don't want to get. You, you, know, you know, the most recent thing that everybody says we're supposed to get now is vitamin D. Have you heard that? We're all deficient in vitamin D. And the reason we're deficient in vitamin D is because we've been listening to people tell, tell us not to go out in the sun, so we're not getting enough sun, so now we've got to take medications to go out in the sun. And, you know, the whole nightmare of what used to be healthy is no longer healthy now, and our corrective measure now has hurt us more than it's helped us. But the idea here is, is that God wants us not only to take corrective medicine, but also preventative medicine. And this is the passion of Paul as he writes this letter. Also, I just have to throw in this in for free, as Warren sometimes says, I remind you, is that, which means it's not in my notes, but I'm going to give it to you anyway, is that Paul is so passionate in this letter that he is writing about as fast as I speak sometimes. So if you think I speak too fast sometimes, because they write fast in the, in the letter here. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because as you look at the first chapter of this letter, uh, in verses 3 through 14, it's one sentence. Paul was writing so fast, he couldn't take the time to put down a period, all right? He was so excited about what he was writing. And so Paul comes here speaking to us as far as how you're supposed to, to live out what God has called you to live. Well, we're going to see this morning that, that it's pretty simple in terms of his approach to the Christian life. He wants us to believe, first of all, that we're blessed, and then secondly, behave like we're blessed. Believe that we are blessed, and then secondly, behave like we're blessed. You know, if we had a monitor that could somehow be operative as you walked in the sanctuary this morning, it would be interesting if we could monitor everyone's sense of blessing as they came in. Did you walk in feeling blessed, or did you walk in feeling like uh, someone gave you a raw deal this week, that somehow that you're not getting the best out of life. And maybe if you play the comparison game, you, you said, well, you know, some people just are wired different than I am. And even though I'm trying either on the entry level to figure out whether I want to become a Christian, I don't seem to be wired to be a person who is a believer. Or if you, even if you are a believer, you're saying, I, I, don't, I don't seem to quite get it. Everybody else seems to be a little bit more successful in the Christian life than me. And sometimes when we play that kind of game, we're saying, well, the reason is because I'm just, there's something different about me. There's something missing. God didn't give me the belief gene or the, the Christian life gene. Well, Paul speaks into that this morning as we look at what he wrote to the church at Ephesus, which was a church he spent a lot of time in. There's a lot we could talk about the context, but uh, we better jump in or we'll never get through. So let's look at the book of Ephesians. And first of all, we want to believe that we are blessed. No matter how you came in this morning, whether you felt blessed or not, hopefully you'll leave believing that God truly has blessed you. Now, it's interesting, as Paul gives us the first blessing, he begins where most people end. Most preachers or teachers, after they give you all their stuff, all the stuff they want you to think about or listen to, at the end they give you a summary, right? They kind of give you a, a parting shot that hopefully pulls everything together. 
where Paul begins with the summary. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, as we believe we're blessed, and we're going to answer the question, well, what? What are we blessed with? Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God, so he first of all gives praise to God, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, that's an amazing statement. That's one of those statements that is too good to be true. It's, it's too good. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. What do you mean? I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Some have said about chapters 1 through 3 and 4 through 6 is that chapters 1 through 3 speak about what God does and does, has done in heaven so that we might know what to do on earth or that we're able to do what he is, wants us to do on earth. And here it begins there. You've got everything that you need. There's, there's nothing different between any of us in terms of being able to live out the life God has called us to live. You know, pastors aren't any different than anybody else. We have the same struggle with sin, the same struggle with habits, the same you know, self-doubts, whatever it might be. And what we need to do is believe what God has done for us. Believe you are blessed. And not just with a little blessing. I mean, I take a little blessing from God. But he says you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Paul, uh, Peter put it this way in 2 Peter 1.3. He said, uh, that God has given you everything pertaining to life and godliness. There is no reason that we ought to feel uh, insecure or down on ourselves about having something less than what we need to be, what God wants us to be. So he begins with that summary statement. You've been blessed beyond your imagination with everything you need. But if you're like me, I go, well, okay, I, you know, it's like you know, a beauty contest. You know, what do you want for the world? I believe for, I, I want world peace. Okay, well, can we get a little bit more specific than world peace? What, well, every blessing. Okay, I get every blessing, but what does that look like? Well, we could spend you know, a month of Sundays trying to pick out every blessing here, but we're going to look at seven, uh, six, more, six specific ones this morning. And uh, let's run through them. Look at verses uh, 4 through 6. You've been blessed with every uh, blessing. In verse 4, he says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us. And here's the phrase I want us to, to look at. To adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. We've been blessed with being adopted with being adopted out of God's love. I didn't show this in the first service, but you know, adoption is, is really close to my home because my wife was adopted. And we know nothing, we, she knows nothing about her biological parent. But by the grace of God, she was brought into a family that loved her and cared for her and treated her like it was their child, because they had chosen her to be their child. And, and she is just so grateful for her parents for bringing her into their family. And to think on that level, what has the God of this universe done? He has brought us into his family. 
in which the Bible says that we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We, we were so far from God that we would have been the last person on a line of people that anyone would have thought, I want that one to be brought into my home. And he did it simply because he loved us. The Bible has a lot of word pictures for what it means to be on God's team. You know, it talks about us being a member of his body. It talks about us being those who have been given a new citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. You know, that classic hymn, this world's not my home. I'm just, what, passing through. Our home is in heaven. That's, that's where our citizenship is. Uh, you know, we're, we're called in some places that we're his servants. You know, he's our boss. We're the ones that follow his orders. Uh, Jesus even said that we're, we're even his friends. But there is no greater picture of being blessed than saying we're part of his family. That we can call our heavenly father our daddy. It's funny, I have to be careful when I start preaching on each one of these points and we'll never get through any of them, all right? Is that's amazing when Jesus was rebuked by the religious crowd, they were often rebuking him because they call, he called Yahweh his father. There was a relationship that they could not understand. And we are adopted into the family of God. We are that blessed. And hopefully you'll get, and this is the, the point later on, is that as we go through the blessings, we ought to be people who are the most grateful beings on this earth. You know, when you're around people who are grateful and thankful, it seems like they can handle anything. They're so, they're so filled with what, what they have. They're not worried about what they don't have because they're so filled with thanksgiving. And see, the big things have already been done. We are part of God's eternal family. We're adopted as sons and daughters of His. Thirdly, uh, we're, we've been redeemed. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of his grace. And we're going to look at two things in that verse. In him we've been redeemed. Now, redeemed is not a word we use a whole lot in our language or our culture today. Uh, some of you are aware of, you know, remember they had green stamps and blue stamps, and you went in to redeem them and whatever. But after that, we haven't, uh, some of you go, what in the world was that? But anyway, it is that we don't do redemption a whole lot. But redemption is, is exchanging something for something else. It's going to the marketplace and buying something that, that needs to be part of who you are. There are two words there. The second word really has the idea of, of bringing people out of bondage. There were approximately six million slaves in that area, Paul writes this. And when he uses the redemption language, he says, God has brought you out of bondage. You are a prisoner of your condition, and God has set you free. And so as we think about being blessed, we as a people are, are free in our relationship with God. And we, are, we were bought at a price that's beyond our imagination, because we were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. And so as we think about who we are in Christ, our position, then all we want to do is kind of to live it out because of what he's done for us. There's so many things in here. In that same verse, it said not only have we been redeemed, we've been forgiven. 
And though forgiveness is such a common theme in the New Testament, we should never take it for granted. Guilt is probably the most destructive emotion that people can have. Because it, it brings us to the point of despair and shame and hopelessness. And the, the bold truth is, the reason we feel guilty is because we are guilty. But what God did is he, he brought down his son to pay the price for our sin. And when we're forgiven, the Bible says, really that word actually literally means to send away your sin. And there's so many different word pictures, particularly in the Old Testament, about God's ability to forgive sins. He remembers our sins no more, which really means he holds them no longer into account. He buries in the deepest sea. Psalm 103, verse 12 said, he, he puts our sin as far as the east is from the west. And to think as we stand before God that we can stand before him unashamed because our sins have been fully sent away from his presence. We are no longer under his condemnation. And Romans 8 says, there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He says, why? Because we have been forgiven. And then he goes on in verse 11, and we're just hitting some of the highlights here. He, he says that, that we have been given an inheritance. Ephesians 1, 11, I already missed the passage here already. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, he, he speaks about obtaining that which will last forever. Ephesians 1, 11. In him also we have attained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We're living in an economic climate in our country now, not only our country, but worldwide. Where this is not a secure thing. You know, people are looking at their retirement accounts, their 401ks, their, their, their savings, whatever it might be, and they're wondering, is it going to be there? Is it going to last? And let's be honest, there's no way to guarantee anything is going to last on this earth. But there is something that can be guaranteed. That's what will happen in heaven. And as we think about our future, the most important future that we have is secure. And we have a down payment of that now. It's not like we only can think about the things by and by, but, but God has given us, his, his, as he says in, in Peter, his most excellent and magnificent promises. That when we think about what we'll have in the future, we have much of that now. When we're in heaven, we will, we will magnify the presence of God in our experience. But even now, we have the presence of God in our life. And Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so in the, in the presence of life's challenges, God is always there. And we know what our future holds. And just to make sure that we understand it's going to happen, he talks about that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're blessed because uh, we have every spiritual blessing. We've been adopted. We've been redeemed. We've been forgiven with an inheritance and with a guarantee seal of what he's going to do. Verse 14 says, Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory? We are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, in those days, when they sent out an important document, they didn't put it in an envelope and lick it and seal it that way. They would put hot wax, put it on the, on the document or the envelope, and they would put with a signet ring um, a mark that sh showed who was sending this document. 
And anybody who would open that that it, was not, that it did not belong to would, would now face the authority or power of the one who had sealed that document. And we've been sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ that what God has promised, he will fulfill. And then we're also blessed with his grace. We're all familiar with that passage, or many are familiar with that passage, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, that no one should boast. And what is grace? We spent a whole Sunday on grace out of the book of Galatians. It's Christ's riches, it's God's riches at Christ's expense, it's God's unmerited favor, it's getting what we don't deserve, it's God's amazing loving kindness. It's his provision and help in all that we need and do. It's that entry point in which we are saved by his grace, his unmerited gift, and it's also we live out the walk with God by his unmerited grace or his provision or help. And that God's grace is sufficient. So what's the point? Paul goes through three chapters and there's a variety of other things we could talk about, how he brought two divergent people together, those who were the covenant people of God, the Jews with the, with the non-Jews, the Gentiles, and we we're one in Christ. And he, he talks all about that. There's no wall of partition. He, he goes through a variety of things about not only vertically but horizontally that we have everything that God has done to, to accomplish great relationships, great, great life with him. Uh, but then he concludes this passage with a great prayer. Now, most of us are probably familiar with the Lord's Prayer. Now I, now I lay me down to sleep. No, that's not that one, right? Um, you know, we know a little bit about the Lord's Prayer. And that's a great model prayer. Uh, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That one is, is you go on. But there's an, there are other prayers in the Scripture that we ought to pray. And I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 21. And I want to challenge you this week to pray this prayer personally. Pray it for your family and pray it for your church family. Asking God to do these things that Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus. Uh, listen to this prayer. And again, I have to resist the temptation to preach this prayer. But here's what he says. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he doesn't, he's not necessarily talking about physical posture here. He's simply saying uh, we ought to humbly come before God. He says, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That he would grant you, and if you personalize this prayer, said he, that he would grant me, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. That's a great prayer to pray for yourself. God, I, I want to be strong today, but I want to be strong by the power of your spirit living within me. And then if you pray that for your family, I want my, my wife, my kids, whatever it might be, I want them to be strong today. But not in their own strength, but in the strength of the Spirit of God who lives within them. But not only that, he goes on and then says this, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, really what he's saying here, that Christ may be at home in my life. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, Christ lives within you, but there are times when he feels more like a stranger than a treasured um, member of the family. And that's when we ignore him. We, we don't speak with him. And we, we don't follow his plan for our life. And he's there, but it's like we're, uh, we're just putting him in the closet. And so a great prayer would be, God, I, I want today to be a day in which you really feel at home in all that I'm doing, all that I'm thinking, all I'm involved in, my attitudes and my actions. And not only me, but my family and my church as well. 
But then he goes on, not only prays for strength, not only prays that, that Jesus would dwell in their hearts, which is the idea of being at home. Verse 18, he prays that we might understand his love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints, all God's people, what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This week, I, I, God, I, I want to know your love in all its fullness. And I want to experience you in all your fullness. And not only me, I, I pray for my family, my wife, my husband, my kids. I, I pray for my church family that they might experience God in his fullness. And they might experience his love in not only its depth, but its height. Not only its length, but its width. I want every dimension of God's love experienced personally. So this week, I invite you to pray this prayer. He concludes it with a doxology. kind of preaches at the end of his prayer, but he says, I want you to understand that God is able to do this. He's able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all you can even ask or think. How? According to the power that works within us. And to him be the praise and glory in the church forever and ever. God, I want you to be praised. And I believe that I can experience your strength. God, I believe I can experience you being at home in my life. God, I believe that, you, that I can experience your love and your fullness. So pr- pray this prayer this week, believing that God has blessed you, and now you can experience it by living it out. Well, this is the first half of his message. Now, I've spent two-thirds of my message on his first half which is believe that you are blessed. Believe that that God has done amazing things for you and in you. Then Paul goes, now what? And the now what is, if you believe you are blessed, now behave like you are blessed. And we'll just touch on these real quickly. First one. Behave like you're blessed with grateful responsibility. He says in verse 1 of chapter 4, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, beg you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. I was trying to summarize something on this statement, uh, and something came out of this. Live with grateful responsibility. See, he he appeals to them based on what God has done and said, well, now, now just live like it. Live like you're blessed. See the standard. See the measure of what God has done in your life. Now, now try to live up to that. When we, are, when, when we understand what God has done, we'll just want to flow out of our life obedience to Him. Now, if you're like me, at times I argue with God. I, well, okay, I know that's what I ought to do, but I'm not sure I can. And you need to realize you can because He has empowered you. There are times you're going to wake up and say, well, I know I can, but I don't know if I really want to. Recognize the want to is, again, based on do you believe how much you've been blessed. And even if you get to the point where you don't feel like you want to, then just do it because you should. Because what God has done for you, it's a privilege and a responsibility to live out the life that God has put in you. In fact, someone has well said, the Christian life is simply living out what God has put in it's God has given you a, a position. Now just practice it. Living up to your potential in Christ. It's not positive thinking. It's positive believing what God has done. Secondly, not only behave like you are blessed with grateful responsibility, behave like you're, you're blessed 
with humility, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing one another in love, uh, enduring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Some translations in verse 2, this is New King James, he says, with all humility. It's interesting, in the Roman Greek Empire, they didn't have a, a word for humility. You know, somehow they took the Webster's Dictionary, it probably wasn't Webster's, but they, they cut it out. You look up H, and there was no humility there. It really came on the scene when Christians came on the scene. Because they thought humility was a, an emotion of cowardice or complacency. And so when the Christians lived a life where the focus wasn't on themselves, that was, that was so foreign to them. But see, that's, that's how God wants us to live. Where we're not always evaluating based on just how did it affect me. In Philippians, Paul wrote, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but consider others more important than yourself. And so the idea is that if, if God has done so much for me, then I ought to be looking at how I can do so much for others with lowliness and gentleness. Also with maturity. If we really believe how much we're blessed, then we don't want to remain child like in our walk with God. We ought to be childlike in our faith in terms of trusting Him completely, but we want to be mature followers of Him. Look what he says in, in, in Ephesians 4, 14 and 15. He writes, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto Him who is the head, Christ. It's really talking about is be mature. Don't let circumstances change your love for God and your obedience to God. Don't be carried away by that which is false, but come back to the truth. Now, interesting. If I were to reprepare this message, I might have taken it from a different angle because I'm giving you broad brushes of the way we ought to behave, we ought to live with grateful responsibility, with humility, with maturity. But he gets very specific about where that's supposed to be lived out. Particularly in Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6, he talks about the husband-wife relationship. Ephesians 6, he talks about parents to children and children to parents. Uh, basically, master-slaves was really the employment arena, how you treat those people who are under you and how you pe- treat people who are over you. He, he talks about just general relationships, friendships. He talks about relationships in the church. These are the things that govern how we relate with people, with humility, with a sense of responsibility, of gratefulness, with maturity. Uh, the also uh, very specific thing is re- recognizing that we are, we are to do our part. Look at verse 15. Verse 16, excuse me. From whom the whole body... Join and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. And that part he's talking about is each one of us. See, as Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, interesting enough, some make a simple distinction between Ephesians and Colossians. Ephesians, the primary focus is, is the church of Christ, where Colossians a lot is the Christ of the church, where he focuses on the nature of Christ. Here he talks about the nature of the church, all related to Christ. And the idea here is, is we live out the worthy walk. It's, it's living it out together. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. We've we got to do it with each other. I, I, I'm pretty good at loving. There's nobody around. 
You know, I'm always loving and kind and not rude. But as soon as people show up, it's not as easy, is it? And so he said, this means you live out here. And also, as you think about doing our part, the Christian life is not a spectator sport. We're all to be participants. You know, all, your, all you NFL fans, you know, they had that big strike and people were wondering, how can I survive? There's, there's no football on Sunday. So why? You got church on Sunday. Why do you need football? But anyway, you got, you know, everybody wanted football to happen. But you think about football, it's, you know, as someone as well said, it's, it's 100,000 people desperately in need at the game, in need of exercise, and 22 people desperately in need of some rest, you know, is that, is that we need to recognize that the participation sport, the Christian life, each of us need to find our area of ministry and do our part for God because all he's done for us. And then finally, look at Ephesians 4. We're not going to get through everything. Ephesians 4, 29 through 32. Paul writes this. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. Now, there's a ton of imperatives there, things we ought to do, but just looking at two of them. We ought to behave like we're blessed with kindness and forgiveness. That, that's such a challenge, isn't it? You know, when I'm in a bad mood, I, I'm not naturally cl- kind. I'm not naturally kind when I'm in a good mood, you know? It, it, it's, it's, it, it's something that needs to be brought into your experience and relating to people the, the way you want to be related to. But let's take a focus just again on that forgiveness because we talked about God forgiving us. God forgives us so then we in turn can what? Forgive others. And really as we bring this back to where we started, and in case you need something in those fill-in-the-blanks, the the last fill-in-the-blanks are spirit and warfare. I'm not going to talk about them, but that's the the fill-in-the-blanks. But as you look at the worthy walk, as I was doing some word study this past week, The word worthy came from a word in which they talked about balances, where there would be two scales. And the idea was to make sure you put the same amount of weight on one side of the scale as you did the other, to have them evenly balanced. And one writer said this, that as we think about living the life that God wants us to live, which is the idea of walking, that we ought to walk a life in perfect balance. If you're into sports, the people who are very proficient at whatever sport it might be, from gymnastics to, to you know, the football, baseball, basketball trilogy, or whatever it might be, it's all done well when you're in balance. And Paul takes this call for us to live out what God has put in. And he says, okay, I want you to get it. I want you to love just as much as God loved you. I want you to forgive just as much as God has forgiven you. I want you to be as kind just as much as God has been kind to you. Now, there is a... a, order to this. 
Because if, if somehow we put our efforts before his efforts, we'll never get it done. But if we remember how much he's loved us, then we're motivated and empowered to love like he has loved. When we remember how much he's forgiven us, then, then we're motivated and empowered to forgive like he has. Now, obviously, we're going to fall short a few times. But the, the goal is to walk a worthy walk in balance to what he has done. We need to learn it before we live it. We need to know it before we try to put it into practice. We need to believe before we behave. We need to walk in a way that people can see Jesus in us. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this call to walk a a life that shows that we've been with Jesus and that Jesus is living within us. It begins with that first step. Every walk begins with the first step. And the first step is knowing you. And that begins when we admit our need and admit our sin in our life and run to you believing that you paid the penalty for our sins and rose again and then committing to follow you as our Lord and our God and our Savior. And Father, is anyone here this morning that has not made that, that commitment? Might today be the commitment where they simply say, Jesus, I want to know you. Come into my life right now. Forgive me of my sin, and I want to follow you. And then after making that commitment, it's a daily experience of remembering what you have done so that we know, know what we are to do. Father, help us to live lives that, that demonstrate that your grace is sufficient and that your power is strong enough and your love is deep enough and high enough and long enough and wide enough to make us the kind of people you want us to be. And we praise in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to include our service in a little bit different way as we're going to